today's scripture comes to us from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I said a moment ago, uh, Pastor Richard here is going to come and deliver the word of God to us. Pastor Richard uh, is a graduate of my alma mater, right, Sarah? Gordon Conwell <laughs> Theological Seminary, our alma mater. Um, and uh, he, he comes with just a lot of excitement and a lot of hope um, just in terms of my encouragement to me of God raising up pastors for this generation. Uh, and regardless of whether or not the Lord ends up calling him here to serve us, I'm just so encouraged to meet brothers like this. And I hope you guys get encouraged too, knowing that God is raising up pastors and through them churches that will be a blessing to this generation and for the next one to come. So, Pastor Richard, thank you again for joining us. And would you allow me to pray for you real sure. quick? Would that be all right? Sure. Father, I just pray for Pastor Richard, and I ask that you would speak powerfully through him and that for the sake of the building up of this body for its edification that you will encourage us now as well as confront us convict us compelling us uh, to humble ourselves even more and to follow more faithfully uh, the call of discipleship father i just pray that you will um, just give us a, a new compelling uh, conviction to heed the words of scripture uh, based on what you'll speak through your servant today for we ask in jesus name Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be here with you all. I'm just going to step back if that's all right, just so I can kind of see more of you. Um, it's so great to be here with you all to join you for, for worship this Sunday. Um, and just a bit about me. I am uh, born and bred from Queens, New York. Uh, this is home, and I have uh, a heart for home, uh, even when it comes to ministry. And so I know you don't really know me, I don't really know you, but the joy that we have is to come together to worship our God who has, who has called us um, to be his uh, light bearers uh, in this world. Um, 
And so uh, thank you to the leadership, to the search committee who have been really working so hard. I'm always told, even in seminary, they, they teach students that search committees most of the time will not really know what they're doing because they're brought together to do this big thing, this important thing. And so um, thank you all for, for leading through that and for graciously kind of welcoming me to be here with you. Uh, and again, sorry, but can we pray just one more time before we dive into the scriptures? Um, Holy Spirit, we thank you so much uh, for who you are and the unity that we have in you, that though we might not um, know one another intimately or well, Lord, in you we find community uh, and and unity that goes beyond any other dividing marker. Uh, So Lord, be with us as we sit under your word. Um, Truly challenge us, strengthen us, Lord, Um, not that we would boast in ourselves, but that we would live um, more boldly for who you are. So be with us and speak. In your precious name we pray, amen, amen. Today, the passage we we looked at comes from the book of Colossians, and Colossians historically was this thriving city. Um, It was located kind of near two major highways, and so there were uh, a lot of different developing things happening. They were known for their textiles, and so they had people from all over kind of coming in from different ethnic backgrounds, philosophies, religious backgrounds, uh, and this is kind of where all of that converged. In, this midst, in the midst of all of this, Paul calls the church there to stay focused on Christ. We here in New York City, uh, it's really a similar kind of place where this is the place where people come to live out their hopes and dreams. Right? Especially here in Queens, we're, we're one of the most diverse urban areas in the world. And here we have immigrants from the corners of the world and now even children and grandchildren of these immigrants. We have transplants from all over. We have the rich, the famous, the poor, the homeless, everyone in between. We have students, young professionals, and families raising children. I was really surprised when I was told that uh, this church has close to 70 children. Um, I I thought I misheard the information, but it is such a joy to be able to celebrate um, our children together. But like Colossae, like New York, it draws people from everywhere. And so we have this mix of ideologies, this mix of philosophies of life, views of who God is and what it means for us. And so today, I believe this is such a timely word for us, um, as the scriptures all are. Uh, but as we look into the scriptures, uh, I hope to glean um, what it has to say for us here today specifically. The passage we read um, opens up with verse one of this chapter, and it says, if then you have been raised, seek the things that are above. And it starts with this understanding, right, that if we have been raised with Christ, and the audience is clearly Christians, the platform here for conversation is salvation, those who have been saved. And that might seem like a basic place to begin, but I think it's so important Because today it's easy for us, especially when we talk of things like sin, to try to think of other people or or the world out there. But here, what's brought into focus, what's brought under the microscope are indeed Christians. And so in looking at this passage, I have four points. And so if if it's hard to kind of stay plugged in or you lose track or you think about the errands you need to run and realize and try to get back into focus, the four points are really the old self, the new self, who we are, and our motivation as God's children. And to start, I want to address the old self. And verse 3 of this passage says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This passage refers to putting to death the old, putting to death 
what is earthly. And that strong language of death isn't an empty hyperbolic statement just for the sake of drama or, or emphasis, but it's a death that recognizes that we have no hope to save ourselves, to become good enough on our own efforts before a holy and sovereign God. And to be hidden with Christ is to be safe and secure in him because of who he is and what he has done. The language of referring to the earthly, it's set opposite uh, to the things of God, not referring to the physical things of earth, that we shouldn't care about what's going on around us, that we shouldn't care about the world we inhabit, but rather it puts it opposed to the things of God, refers to the sinful nature, that in which we once lived before Christ, or as I'll refer to it, the old self. Taking on the new then is the opposite, which I'll refer to as the new self. And when it comes to talking about kind of self and identity, it can be something that's really difficult to hear or even talk about in our day and age. When it comes to identity, one of the things that our culture likes to say is, this is me. Embrace me as I am. It's this declaration and anthem of self-acceptance. You see, this expression holds a helpful message of accepting oneself, of giving voice to those who have been oppressed, shunned, and shamed because of who they are. See, so much of the world we live in gets tied into needing to prove oneself as being good enough. Whatever that currency might be, whether it's money, accomplishment, status, fame, popularity, whatever it might be, this world calls for us to prove ourselves as worthy. And all of these things might not be evil in and of themselves, but when we make them to be tools to prove ourselves to, to buy our way through, we get lost. We deter away from the things that we were called to, made for. But this cry for self-acceptance is not a bad one in and of itself. You see, in our culture today, it kind of morphs and, and degrades into a different message. It speaks negatively into the way that we might refer or relate to one another. We swing beyond the beneficial voice of self-acceptance and we create a culture where no one can correct anyone, where everyone's truth, subjective truth, is is meant to be treated as untouchable. And all of this creates a climate of hyper-political correctness, inapproachability rooted in politeness and sterile disconnection this kind of message also speaks into the way we approach God, the way we think about sin in our lives. I come as I am and God accepts me as I am is a beautiful and wonderful and profound truth that refers to how God offers us this grace so freely that it's not by our own merit. But what can easily happen, whether it's explicitly stated or implicitly simply lived out, this message degrades and becomes I come as I am and no one can correct me. Who are you to correct me? Because the Bible says not to judge, and it calls us to love, and so no one can call anyone out. Jerry Bridges, he's, uh, he was a pastor and a Christian author, and he wrote this book called Respectable Sins. And in it, he says, the concept of sin among many conservative Christians has been essentially redefined to cover only the obviously gross sins of our society. The result then is that for many morally upright believers, the awareness of personal sin has effectively disappeared from their consciousness. This idea of obviously gross sin, it's not talking about particular things because that changes as time goes on and in different cultures what is seemingly larger or obviously 
gross, but rather this speaks to the core that we're really good at focusing on the sins and shortcomings of others, the flaws and maybe gross things of the society around us. But we use that as a guise to hide ourselves, to no longer recognize our sin. And what happens is that it leaves us with blind spots in our faith. It leaves sin rotting in the corners of the cellars of our hearts, unaddressed and untouched. And so here in Colossians, Paul brings up these lists of sins, these lists of things that characterize the old self. And he refers to even anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And these are broader terms than maybe the sexual immorality pieces that he might bring up. He refers to even lying to one another and brings up ideas of conflict resolution, all of these things that begin to get more and more uncomfortable in our day and age. Jerry Bridges, he continues on to say this, but it, our sin, has not disappeared from the sight of God. Rather, all sin, both the so-called respectable sins of the faith, of the saints, which we too often tolerate, and the flagrant sins of society, which we too quickly uh, condemn, our disregard for God's law and our reprehensible uh, in his sight. Both deserve the curse of God. And whether your flavor of sin seems flagrant or is this kind of unaddressed, passable, and what Jerry Bridges refers to as respectable sins, there's no room in the Christian faith to cling to the trappings of the old self. There's no room for us to cling to the trappings of our sinful selves, and it's a call for everyone to repentance, to receive the grace of God. And so when we look at the old self and recognize maybe how, how short we fall to the glory of God, it's easy for us to then be very discouraged to get stuck in that mindset of being lost in our shame or guilt or whatever it might be. And here comes the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's heart, that his intention is not to burden, curse, or crush. Rather, it's for us to live life with him. And God loves and he saves, again, not based on merit, but because of his character and his word, his promises, and his desire is to have us live out what is truly best for us. And so the scriptures unapologetically calls us to grow, become more like him to address our sin, to confess, to put down, put to death the things of the old and to pick up the new. And this is what we're calling the new self. In describing the new self, Douglas Moo, he's a New Testament scholar, describes it this way, that we're not to have, um, we are not to have strive for a heavenly status since that has already been freely given to us in Christ. Rather, we are to make the heavenly status the guidepost for our thinking and acting. And what I'll say about the new self is that the new self is anchored in Christ, that he is our guidepost. And so in Colossians, in verse two, that was read for us, it says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And as it refers to the mind, it's not thinking simply of intellectual assent or, or agreement, but it speaks into a deeper understanding of self. That when the Bible speaks of heart, it's not merely talking of emotion, but it's mind and heart are referring to the core of who we are. And so it might be more helpful to read this as set your life or will on the things that are above. And you see, for God's people, 
chosen by him, called by him. This is not merely something we do or occasionally participate in. But for God's people, this is who we are. To set our lives on the things of God, continually putting to death the old self and walking in the new self. And this message is given to the Colossians that they wouldn't lose sight of God in the midst of competing voices and false truths about who God is, about life. And Paul calls them to hold fast to Christ and live out this identity. We also are, are surrounded by so many different competing voices, ideals, and, and images of what life ought to be that grasp for our attention, that try to woo us, to align us in a different trajectory. But this lifelong journey of growth is for all of us to remember and to recognize. Whether you're new to Christianity, whether you've been living with Christ for years and decades, it's not a basic tenet of faith that we learn it, we practice it, and we move on to other things, but rather it's core and central. It's fundamental to our faith, and to neglect it is foolishness. I grew up, and I was... um, Like most Asian Americans who grew up here, I was uh, given violin lessons from the age of five to the ripe age of 17. Uh, On and off, and I was not good. I did not enjoy it, right? But when I learned it, my dad, the first song that I learned, the first thing I learned to play was from Suzuki Volume 1, the Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. If you're your parents or you've had this experience, it's just variations rhythmically of Twinkle Twinkle. And you spend hours and hours playing Twinkle Twinkle and variations of it. And my teacher had me, had me play that for four months. And it came to the point that my dad would joke that referring to like practicing the violin, he would, he would call it tika tika because that's how, that's what it sounded like with tika tika tika. And so he would say, oh, did you tika tika today? I was like, but this, it was all the fundamentals. Right? I tell people anyone can learn music. I was actually a music major in college and I tell people anyone can learn music. It's, it's the hours that you put in that really help you to get there. And with the violin, it was true that to neglect the fundamentals, nothing else really helped or replaced that, right? Basic things like how to use the bow or the intonation, how to do different things, all of that supported me to learn other things. And there were things that I had to come back to, right? The violin is based so much on muscle memory, and that disappears if it's not practiced. And so in a similar way, our faith, to bring our lives to Christ, to recognize that we're called to put down the old self and take on the new, it's fundamental. It's something that we all continue to do, to set our lives on the things above. And in this journey, Christ becomes the head that dictates function and life. He is the cornerstone, the first stone laid meticulously and thoughtfully so that the rest will fall into place. He's the rudder that steers the ship. That this journey isn't just about being continuous in our lives in terms of time, but it's also expansive. Christ has a hand in every part of our lives, and in verse 17, it says this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we journey with Christ, every part of our lives are informed by him, realigned to stand with him, continuously. And so the question for Christians is how do I use my sphere of influence, my specific position, my life stage, my role and positions to show the goodness and glory of God? 
And we're called to be faithful with each of the opportunities and areas that God has placed in our lives. Now, this effect of the new self, it goes beyond merely the individual, goes beyond the individual experience and actually even speaks to the church, the community, who we are. Now, in the Bible, different pictures are painted to to show the intention of God for his people. In Acts, it's this great picture of generosity, of the miraculous, of people coming to faith. In the Old Testament, it's that God's people are to, to make room for the outsider, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, to care and to love for those who are not like them, right, who are disadvantaged. But here in this text, we're brought something very different, very different from merely being generous or, or caring for those who don't have, right? Here in Colossians 3.11, it says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And this mention of, of diversity or different peoples might feel out of place with the rest of what's going on in this passage. You see, this is a reflection of God's heart, that this was always the case for him. Professor Steve Kang, he was a professor at Gordon-Conwell, and he, he was a part of writing this book called A Many-Colored Kingdom. And he says, diversity without unity is unbiblical. And then he goes on to say that unity without diversity is unbiblical. A lot of times we might agree with that first statement, that, that unity is crucial and necessary to submit to one another, to love, to submit to the scriptures, and all of that is good. But what often gets left out is this value of diversity, that is not just convenient or, or supplemental, but it's something we're called to as God's people. And it's something that he himself mirrors for us in the Trinity, that, that three in one, that perfect union, though they are distinct. Marriage is supposed to be a reflection of this, that two different individuals come together and become one. Abraham was called and, and would be blessed, not for his own sake, but to bless the rest of the world, to bless the peoples, to bless those not like him. And this goes beyond just ethnic differences. It goes beyond the nations and the different people groups. See, Christ came and he showed compassion to the marginalized and the rejected. The church was always called to be one body in Christ, recognizing our different gifts, recognizing our differences. So here, as we recognize the new self informing who we are, it's more than just a journey of self. And right now, I don't know how responsive you all normally all are or if you, if you reply with amens during sermons, but with this next statement, can I ask that you simply be brave, bold, and, and helpful, I guess, supportive to agree with an amen with this next statement, that it takes more effort to journey with people who are not like me. It takes more effort to journey with people who are not like me. Amen? Amen. Thank you. This is true, right? We don't have to think very far or, or examine our lives so much to recognize this. See, socially, we're, we're drawn to people who are like us. It's easier to get along with people. We have so much overlap, right? It's even considered safe to be with people who are like you. My parents, um, they immigrated here. Uh, they were both kind of the first of their families. And this kind of became a part of my upbringing, that people who are like us are safe. 
and I grew up thinking that all Korean individuals were Christian and all Christians were Korean. And so when I met for the first time a non-Korean who was a Christian, it really like blew my mind. I said, wait, why is this so astonishing? But because this is so prevalent in our culture that those who are like us are safer. You see, Christ calls us to do life together with those who are not like us, to pour into one another. And maybe here you might think of diversity and people who are not like you. One of the easiest to point out in churches in America are, are the divide, the seeming divide between married individuals and single individuals. One of the things that so many pastors wrestle with is how do we find a place for both of these people to come together? And I think that's a call for all of us to consider as well, that as young people, we have time. It's one of the things we have that parents don't have. Amen. Amen. (laughs) I say this regularly. I don't know how new parents or parents of newborns get anything done, frankly, because you're so busy helping this individual, this, this baby survive and thrive. And any free time you have, you're just marveling and trying to enjoy those sweet moments. And one of the things that single individuals, younger people, even college students can provide is a resource of time. And the flip is that these families, these older individuals can speak into life with life experience to those who are younger. I've worked a lot with with youth uh, ministries, had interactions with young people, and one of the things I always try to emphasize is is this inter-life stage interaction. For college students particularly, we get lost in the world of college. We think that's it. And it's so hard to look beyond or outside of that or to see a different picture or to even imagine what faith looks like after college. And it's such a great way for the church to come together to make disciples, to teach those things. And so we're called to do life with those who are not like us. Another way that we can do this is to learn to advocate and to champion one another. In our day and age, there are so many inequalities. To generally state them, I I simply think of them as majority culture and minority culture, whatever that might be. Ethnicity, class, right? How much money you make, what kind of work you do. Right? Your, your sex and gender, your male and female, there's an imbalance in the world we live in. And I say this, that those of the majority culture, whether that's majority by just the amount of people in a space, majority in terms of power inequality, those in the majority can become the biggest and strongest advocates for those who are in the minority. And it's unfortunate but true that women who will stand up and call for their own rights are labeled as, as extreme that they can't even find a voice for themselves, even though they desperately try. But it's a different message if a man stands up to celebrate women, to acknowledge where they have been wrong and hurt, and to stand together. It's a completely different message. And I believe the church in its diversity can learn and and be such an amazing place of life-giving word to advocate for those who are not like us. And this is a radical picture of loving community. This is what God calls us to. That we're called to be Christ's bride, his body, to move with his heart, with his mission to the world. And to recognize that in salvation, we all have equal standing before God. That before him, we are all valued, crafted in his image, saved by the same grace. 
It's a new creation. I want to ask, who in here is not like you? Who in your life is not like you? Ethnicity, just general background, socioeconomic standing, sex, marital status, different markers of success. Who is not like you? And you see, in churches and communities, we can't do this always with everyone we meet. Especially in a growing church environment, it gets harder and harder. It doesn't get easier. It gets harder and harder to do this. But the challenge is, you, we, as individuals and as a church, are we growing in our capacity to love those who are not like us? Are we growing in our capacity to do life with people who are not like us? I think the way that we grow in doing this is actually actively addressing our own sin actively putting down the old self and taking on the new, actively beholding the goodness and and grace of God in our lives. Because when we do that, when we're humbled before the cross, there's less and less room for a lack of compassion for those who are not like us. There's less and less room to stand arrogantly next to somebody who is not like me. Because I recognize what Christ has done for me and the grace he offers those around me. But here it's true. It's hard to do this. It is hard to continue to do this. It is hard to allow Christ to inform all the areas of our life. It is hard to grow in loving those who are not like us. And this brings me to to my final point, um, and that's simply the motivation. The motivation. Where do we find the motivation to continue in this? I think motivation comes, one of the greatest places it comes from is having a worthy goal, having a worthy goal. Somebody who's unmotivated to exercise or to take care of their health, there are so many excuses, so many good excuses even. Growing up, I was never like an athletic child. Um, I'm not super competitive. I liked relying on myself, and so team sports wasn't like a huge draw for me, and so for much of my life, exercise was not a priority. What was a priority was cake, I really like cake. A friend of mine, he's uh, getting married, and um, he asked me to kind of participate, be a part of, of all of that. And one of the things he asked me recently was, would you come and taste cakes with us? And I paused, and honestly, I felt something, and I said, hey, I know, I know all of these things are so important, but honestly, this is like a high privilege for <laughs> me. Right? And in college, I started to take care of my health, to exercise, so that I could eat cake. So I could eat whatever I wanted and and know that I'm taking care of myself for years to come. And cake was my motivator. But you know what? It wasn't that great a motivator, right? Three or four years ago, I got really into, um, like, climbing, like indoor rock climbing. Um, I've gone outdoors and and all of that. And it's been kind of an obsession. And this has become a new motivation, for me to take care of my health and to exercise. And you know what? It's actually stronger, uh, stronger motivation than cake, right? To now have goals in terms of building strength and getting better at this uh, activity, right? Recently, um, in the last year, I had a quick turn in my health, right? It's kind of out of nowhere, kind of sudden, but for me, that became the bigger motivation more recently, that now I needed to take care of my health to, to really research what's happening in my health and how I can get better. And it drew me even 
a bigger, uh, worthy goal than cake and climbing. And maybe in your life, you see a parallel. Maybe you're a student or you have been a student. And a lot of times what happens is that through the semester, smaller assignments don't seem that important and maybe we might not take them too seriously. But what happens around midterms and finals is that all of a sudden there's all this motivation to catch up, to study, to work really hard that we'll work through days and through nights to get done what we need to get done. And with this worthy goal of doing well in exams, our excuses seem to fade. Parents who realize that they need to be healthy for their families, the excuses fade very quickly not to take care of health, not to prioritize it. And so for Christians, the question is, what is our worthy goal? What is the worthy goal that makes the excuses fade? And simply put, it's this, to worship God and to enjoy him to behold the goodness and glory, grace and love of this sovereign God. And this isn't a goal for us simply to claw at or desperately um, um, gruel over, but it's truly for our good. It's what we were made for. It's what we were designed for. And it might seem super simple to present it that way, but the truth is, as we live life with Christ, as we taste and see his goodness, we come to find that there's depth beyond measure to how deep this goal goes. And without this goal, without this, this need or, or design to worship and enjoy God, the idea of addressing our sin, of putting to death the old self, it becomes this needless exercise of pain. The call, an idea of growing beyond cordial tolerance of those who are not like us, it's ridiculous. It's unnecessary. But Christ gives us this goal to live out his heart, to live out his mission, to partake in something so grand and big and deeper than ourselves. And the beauty as Christians is that we're not simply given a worthy goal and left to our own devices. This God we worship, this God we've come to to worship and encounter and meet with and submit our lives to, he hasn't left us to our own devices to figure it out on our own. The Holy Spirit is with us and God is still at work in us and through us. Like a good teacher who will take the time to believe in a student who is struggling, to to call them and expect something better. How life-giving that can be. God himself is that and so much more. He promises us that this is his work, that he will bring it to completion. Here in verse three and four, it says this, for we have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, that when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That despite our shortcomings, despite maybe the ache of life that we face here now today, God is the one at work. God is our advocate. God is the one who gives us value and calls us his own. Would you bow your heads and and pray with me? So Holy Spirit, we thank you first and foremost for the gift of salvation that we are now called your sons and daughters though we were once enemies of God lost in our sin. Lord, we're now yours. Lord, as we celebrate that, I pray that you would open our eyes um, to see what's before us, to see what you're calling us to address. 
Lord, help us not to grow weary, tired, or stale in, in this, this life of putting down the old and taking on the new. But Lord, help us to see that you're journeying with us. Help us to tie all of these things to worship, to know more of you, to, to enjoy you. Lord, place on our hearts, on each person here, on ways for us to, to see sin in our lives. Would you open our eyes to see it? Convict us. Open our eyes to, to see people who are not like us, that we're called to love, called to do life with. Help us to be diligent and, and good stewards of our time and opportunities, Lord, to make room to ask what you might be calling us to. Give us your strength to do these things and remind us that we don't do them of our own accord, but truly you are indeed our teacher, our motivator, our good father, and our everlasting hope. In your precious name we pray, amen.